die for heaven's sake. Die, die. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the IMMP podcast. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. Matthew, can you read me? <laughs> yes, you are coming in. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little afraid that our equipment is now going to burst into flames and sparks. That's a valid concern. <laughs> Although we don't have to tap into the Brazil to London cable in order to uh, to share this podcast. The Brazil to London cable sounds like a completely different podcast feed. <laughs> it does. It yeah. does. Or a Wes Anderson movie. Oh my goodness, that is a Wes Anderson movie. <sighs> not what we watched this time, though. No, it's not. It, it occurs to me that we've actually talked about a fair number of submarine-related movies. Submarines are an interesting opportunity in film and storytelling. Because it's an enclosed space, it keeps your number of casts small, usually to the main command crew and you know people on the head and the bridge of a, of a group. But there's implied to be extra people running around and doing things on this vessel. It's an area that's isolated enough from the rest of what is known that they can explore new places and experience new things that they haven't before. You get to know these groups of people. They can, you know, go places with gusto. And you you can kind of use that same format anywhere. You can use that on any sort of grand expedition, but it's very submarine-based, and the only other place I can think of people have tried anything like that might be space. Yeah. Because, as you say, it's everything's self-contained, and because of this self-contained environment and the unexplored places, it's very easy to set high stakes, high tension, because anything goes wrong, lives are in danger. Exactly. So, I think we have previously, if I'm counting correctly, we've previously looked at three submarine-related movies. Well, let's see. One of our earliest episodes was 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Yes. We did... Oh, you had us look at Disney's Atlantis, Atlant- The Lost Empire. Yes. Oh, I guess I'd that, that count does, that as... That counts very much. It's That's not a, fully submarine-based, but there's a whole lot of submarine there. There's enough submarine in this. And, of course, Ice Station Zebra. And we can even give ourselves a, a half for uh, the... Uh, Oh, the island. Which one? Oh, yeah. The uh, uh, mysterious island we watched during one of our Harryhausen months. Right. So that's, that was a, a reprise of Captain Nemo. When we if, had the if there's any Nautilus. deficit to the amount of submarine that we had in Atlantis because the submarine explodes later, I think we, we made up for it in the other part. So, so we've got at least three submarines total. <laughs> Some of them may have been fractional submarine movies. Although a fractional submarine is not a terribly useful submarine. <laughs> no, that is a very problematic submarine. <laughs> but we turned to submarines again. I think we might be launching on a submarine theme for the month of May. Ah. But we talked about... Mayday, mayday, dive, dive, <laughs> dive. 
We talked about Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, the 1961 feature film produced and directed by Irwin Allen. Why does that name... Why is that name familiar? Well, we have uh, we have encountered Irwin Allen before because he created several uh, TV shows in the 50s and 60s, one of which was Lost in Space. That's it. That was an Irwin Allen production. That's what I'm thinking of. And later on in the 70s, he became known as the the king of disaster movies. And we're going to have to turn to the 70s version of Irwin Allen at some point. But now we're squarely in the 60s, and Irwin Allen is showing us the vision of an amazingly cool high-tech submarine. Not a warship. This is not a naval ship. It is a, or boat. This is a submarine for the USOS, the United States Oceanic Survey. So it's government, but civilian, not military. Okay, yeah, it happens to have several racks of ballistic nuclear missiles. But it's not a warship, pro- honest. The missiles are for research. I I know what in the world this this <laughs> thing has such an arsenal. And they do treat us to a terrific ship tour at the beginning. Well, at the very beginning they treat us to a cool a song. Yes. We get a cool song and we get the starting mission which is that they are exp- they are doing an exploratory test of this new submarine by going under the polar ice cap. Which is very cool and not a voyage to the bottom of the sea yet. No, it's not. So, note that. But yes, then now we get the tour, helpfully provided by the fact that our admiral, who is there, and kind of doing more being in charge than the captain of the ship, is there to show various different uh, delegates of different departments around the vessel. Yeah, our our leads in this are our Walter Pigeon playing Admiral Harriman Nelson, and this uh, this submarine is his vision, and it was re- referred to by some as Nelson's folly before it proved itself. And then we've also got uh, Robert Sterling as Captain Crane who is the, the captain of this vessel. And you're right, Ian. It seemed to me that the, the admiral took a more active role in directing ship's operations than, uh, than would typically be the case. It was almost as if the admiral was the captain of the boat and the, the captain was his XO. Which makes for an interesting kind of dynamic, because one of them is being a hot-headed man of action and the other one is being a a logical man of the books at any time yeah uh the admiral is very much a an engineer admiral yeah he had a vision for this ship and for the and, and he willed it into being i think he even says at some point and the captain is much more about looking after the boat looking after the men Reprioritizing the mission as needed, as opposed to the very, very logical and numbers-driven admiral. And that I don't want to give the impression that the admiral is is not personable because they show him as the kind of guy who could get funding for this giant submarine. 
because of the connections he has and his ability to glad hand politicians and all of that. So he can play that game as well. Yeah, he's 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 a he's an engineer and a tactician. Yes. And a politician. Yes. And the reason they're giving this tour that we get to tag along on is that visiting uh, on the boat, we've got a, a congressional auditor who's concerned about all the money this is costing, and a psychiatrist or psychologist, I think she's a medical doctor, I think she's a psychiatrist, who is there because she wants to study, she's doing a research study on men in, essentially men in tight quarters under stress. A submarine is a pretty good uh, laboratory for that. Absolutely. So the uh, the psychiatrist and the the person from Congress are being given a tour, and that means we get to get have a tour. It means Ethan. Uh, I almost said Ethan Allen. He's the furniture guy. <laughs> he is the furniture guy and the patriot guy. Erwin uh, Allen gets to show us this submarine that he created for this show, and it is a cool submarine. It is a cool submarine. I I kind of want to go through it from front to back the way they do in the in the movie. Sure. So from at the very front, we have the observation deck because they've got these giant plates of super reinforced glass making a a giant like 360 viewing uh, arc in the front that you can watch through. And that gives the, the boat its name, the sea view. Yes. It also gives it a very like wild look on the front because this thing has a very, very rounded front and then it fans out in the back like a dart and it's got these great tail fins like a 58 cadillac yes it is it is a remarkably aerodynamic looking aquadynamic vehicle (laughs) and it the way it displays out in the front it's almost like a, a ray sort of shape at the very nose of it yeah and i know the overall outline of the shape of this boat for pretty well because when I was a kid, we had a toy of the Sea View. You did? I think it was was from one of my brothers, but I got to play with it as a, a at some point. And I'm pretty sure it was bright yellow, which it isn't in the movie, but it had that shape and it had the big windows and it was this was like a foot and a half long, at least it seemed like it to me. It was a pretty cool model. There's something also about the shape that makes me think it's like a Cylon tried to rebuild a Xenomorph. It's got this, like, <laughs> strip bar in the front. It's got that elongated Xenomorph kind of head shape in some ways. But yes! So that's its, its trademark, is that, that observation uh, section in the nose. And it has some lab stuff underneath, I take it, and some quarters things underneath in that front. Yeah, it's a multi-deck boat. Yes. You then get into the body where it becomes extremely generic, but well-polished submarine set. With lots of very high-tech stuff for the early 60s, with uh, computer tape drives, lots of blinking lights. (laughs) And a wall of buttons. (laughs) A massive wall of buttons. It looks like something that you'd install in a Meow Wolf display. (laughs) Because it's like, this is designed for people to randomly come up and press and hear noises. It is excessive in a a fun way. (laughs) Then we go kind of down a forking path, but we have to go through the interior aquarium. 
Yeah, there's a whole marine biology lab in the middle of this ship, overseen by Commodore Lucius Emery, played by Peter, Peter Lorre, who is doing such a fun job. I'm No one else could introduce their character by walking their shark. <laughs> and he is doing so. He is in this... With a with a prop shark walking it around, like I'm trying to, fo- I I like try, I'm trying to force water into its gills to get it to wake up after we shocked it for uh, medical testing, and just the way he is <laughs> roughly handling this thing, everyone else is acting terrified of, so perfectly. It is so much fun. I don't know that we have talked about any Peter Lorre movies for the podcast previously. I don't think so. But I know that I showed you The Maltese Falcon and Casablanca, and those are the kind of movies that led to us making the podcast. But this is such an out-of-character role for Peter Lorre, because for so much of his career, he was playing the very creepy bad guy. And here, he's playing the slightly creepy, really good guy. Yeah, he's just extremely- He's so cool. He's playing a guy so dedicated to his craft- that if you're not at least tangentially attached to his craft, you're not going to click with this guy. And I have met that guy <laughs> in multiple other scenarios under multiple different focuses. Yeah, he is a marine biology nerd, but it's not like he's, oh, I'm doing horrible, sinister experiments. No, he's looking for better ways to k- take care of these creatures, and he's providing surgery when they need it for for medical purposes and making sure they can breathe until they wake up afterwards. The same kind of energy that is used to make things scary could be used to say, dang it, Manta Ray, how does this work? In, in such a fervent way. And I can't <laughs> guess. <laughs> how do you work? Just picks up the sea creature and shakes it. <laughs> and a couple of other supporting characters we see periodically are, again, Frankie Avalon, who sang the opening song as... Uh, He's on the bridge crew. Is he their like, comms officer? He's I believe a he- Lieutenant J.G. Danny Romano. Yeah. And also Barbara Eden yes. as Lieutenant J.G. Kathy Connors, who is the, uh, he was Admiral Nelson's secretary. Yeah. Barbara Eden later goes on to be most well-known for I Dream of Jeannie. Exactly. One of those shows we'll have to watch one of these days. <sighs> but it, we, we get kind of this old, this like, these experienced people and this this cast of bright-eyed young sailors on this fantastic vessel. We get to meet the ship's doctor, who is played very, very well, I feel, by Regis Toomey, who is just giving... He's one of those guys who, like, he just has this presence every time he's on screen. <laughs> He, he he can he can grump and react in the background perfectly. There are a couple of shots where you see the captain and the admiral arguing over something, and one of them talking about how the fact that you know if we don't do this, none of us are going to survive. And there in the foreground is the doctor, obviously hearing them. And Toomey is is acting through every second of that. Yes. Kind of just facially reacting the way you would expect somebody on board to react when he hears the admiral saying, "We might all, we might all die." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in some ways, his facial responses help help every man, everything else on the crew. He gets, he might be playing the ship's doctor, but he is voicing everybody in the background <laughs> all the time. Yeah, he kind of represents us sometimes. Yes. 
we get to see the uh the nuclear reactor that powers the ship and get introduced to a very cool fashion accessory which is the little blue badges everyone wears oh the little dosimeters yeah they they turn clear if you've got if you're getting radiation and turn red if you've gotten a lethal amount and then we get to the room that makes me mad what is that room the engine room how does that make you mad it's so big is this it? thing has a ceiling so high compared to other stuff oh. this is this is so big and so wide there is something all the other things it felt like an environment the engine room feels like a sound stage <laughs> and it's full of it's full of wild interesting weird engines which apparently need regular polishing <laughs> and a ridiculously overstocked armory. Yeah, the arsenal is like that as well before they get to the engine room. That's, oh, yes. that's the one that's got just stacks and stacks of explosives and grenades and weapons and the the tubes for their, their nuclear missiles. The missiles are for research. As yeah, Admiral Nelson... That. Reminds us several times. What are you researching? The effect <laughs> well, of nuclear vision on an environmental target? What are you yes, doing? Yes, if we ever have to research what are the effects of a nuclear bomb on a medium-sized city, we can conduct that research right from here. You're right with that particle analysis? Because it is gone. <laughs> it is vaporized. <laughs> oh no. This is... There's something just terrifying about the casualness of that, and ca the terrifying nature of giant standard metal shelving racks full of explosives with no visible tie-down straps on a tilting submarine. Yeah, I don't think they were being very careful with that. And in general, there is so much open space. I mean, the size of Admiral Nelson's cabin, the size of some of the other spaces. Uh, but in terms of the the... <laughs> The armory and the engines and things, it's good to remember this was still kind of in that Adams for Peace time frame where yeah. the the USS Nautilus, the first our, our first nuclear submarine was launched not that long before this, which was a tiny Navy submarine mm -hmm. comparatively. And the idea of using nuclear power for peaceful and scientific and beneficial purposes was was a big topic so the idea of putting all this technology into what could very well be a warship we're not going to use it that way that was kind of a utopian vision of, of it, sorts it, it really was there's something about being a a military structured but exploratory and scientific force instead because there's something that you're, you're guided by something better than war is definitely of that kind of mindset and era and it was, it did become clear that a lot of the people on board, a lot of the crew and a lot of the officers, they had had Navy careers, but were now working for the uh, Oceanographic Survey. Exactly. So we have this long stretch of the movie where we're just learning about this, this submarine, and I wouldn't remove a second of it. We, no. we We are getting to learn the submarine. We're also getting to learn the characters. And none of it seems forced... None of it seems more artificial than a lot of movies of the time. It feels like it's setting up a very, very... If, you, if I didn't know... If I hadn't seen this before, I would feel like it's setting up a there will be a disaster on this. And the... Especially with the, the folly aspect they keep talking about, it feels like there's going to be some problem, and it's going to be a dangerous thing, and that's going to be the problem. 
Like something about this ship yes. is going to cause a problem. It, meeting the ship feels like you're meeting a character, as a good a vessel should be. But there's things that would make me wonder if it is going to be the villain at first. I mean, the fact that you've got so much headspace just makes it feel like you know, Chekhov's aileron roll is waiting to throw <laughs> everyone across each of these oversized rooms, and they never actually use that. But no, it's not the villain. Because as they're tra- testing things out, the sky catches fire. Yeah, it does that. It does that. It does that. That happens. Wait, what? <laughs> they're they're cruising to their next test location, and suddenly there's an asteroid storm. I'm sorry. Suddenly there is sinking ice. Yes, I'm not sure exactly how that works. Well, but they, they, well, they say that the when when the when the asteroid storm you mentioned lights a belt of radiation in the upper oh. atmosphere on fire, it melts the ice caps and it starts to sink sections. I guess so. I guess depending on how things are being churned up, usually ice floats. But I'm not going to yeah. be too picky about that. Uh, but yeah, they surface and the sky is on fire because the Van Allen radiation belts have caught fire. I don't know exactly how that works because. Uh, you know, fire, fire oxygen, but something going on. Maybe it's, they say that it's on fire and maybe it's actually some kind of fission or fusion going on in the belts. They don't bother telling us a whole lot. And that's fine with me. It's a, it's a, it's a trope. It's a, we need a disaster. Here's the disaster. Don't ask too many questions. Just watch us try to solve it. But there we wind up with, suddenly what I thought was going to be a villain or what I would have known... What, the, the story I would have expected is properly interrupted by a different disaster movie. And that's uh, it's a very Irwin Allen sort of, of structure that he leans into even harder in what are considered his real disaster movies. This is more of a rescue fiction sort of thing. It's more like Thunderbirds, where it's about the rescue. Later on, more of his movies turn into be into things that are about the disaster. This is very Thunderbirds, with a wildly advanced ship decked out with things, saving people with advanced technology from dangerous environments. <laughs> this is extremely Thunderbirds in that sense. But we've got a ship full of scientists, some of the great, the, the best environmental scientists of all types they've got. And so they are immediately trying to find out what has happened, and need to get to a giant conference about how do we deal with this. So they make their way from the Arctic to New York to like dock across the street from the UN so they can attend to this UN conference of the, like, the UN Science Council. Yeah, which oh. I note is not a voyage to the bottom of the sea. No, they, they have yet to go below a couple of hundred feet, it seems to be so Exactly. Far. And also, uh, when before they head back to New York, I believe that is when they pick up a survivor from a research... Uh, yes. Uh, uh, some kind of research expedition, somebody in a boat with his dog as the sole survivors. Miguel Alvarez, yes. At Ice Flow Delta. And the, the, the UN Science Conference is... is trying to figure out what to do about the fact that the sky is on fire. <laughs> and the leading voice there that most people are backing is the guy who's saying, ah, don't worry about it. 
It'll, it'll burn, burn itself out. Yeah, it'll burn itself out. It'll get to about, the Earth will get to about 173 degrees, and the whole thing will burn itself out. Don't worry. And he is aggressive about that. He is French, and he is aggressively French about that. <laughs> but our our protagonists have a a different solution. They've spent their trip here, both trying to calculate it and trying to keep the men of the ship calm as they hear stories about how much devastation this is causing out in the world. Yeah, it's burning crops and melting ice caps and already doing some really awful stuff. Which means agreeing to a, to a plan that causes it to keep going is awful. Right. It's, and, there's they not only do they not think that it's going to burn itself out the way Dr. Zuko says it will, but they think that allowing it to do that is going to cause so much damage. So remember how we said those things were for research purposes? They're going to research it to death. <laughs> By amputating the Kuiper belt with nukes. Not the Kuiper belt. No. The Van Allen Van belt. Van Allen belt. That would be a much <laughs> longer trip to let do it the Kuiper let me belt. Retry. Should I retry that? You can, but I might keep it in. I okay, like it. <laughs> never mind. But yeah, amputate the Van Allen belt with nukes. If I can get to this place and shoot it, it will go away. We have to shoot it at the right day, on the right time, in the right direction. And yes, it will have a giant nuclear explosion, but that's okay. It'll explode away from us and push the Van Allen belt out into space. There is something about this plan that sounds less like dramatic scientific uh, knowledge and more like someone knowing how to unload the boss in a video game by standing <laughs> on the right point in the room. It's like, if I stand over here, unequip my weapon and jump twice, the the minotaur just drops through the floor and I can walk on my way. It's wild. There's so much <laughs> weird and arbitrary but precise like mathematic calculations being applied <laughs> that it almost gets silly again. It, it, to me, you take away the, the, the scientific and mathematical confidence that Nelson and Emery have. And there's very much a hold my beer kind of feel to this. Like, don't worry. I watched my uncle do this once we shoot it with a nuke, but we hit it just right. It'll be cool. So if it wasn't the sea view doing this, there'd be a guy with a junkyard who would just build a submarine <laughs> and a nuke and get his way over there and That's shoot right. it anyway. That's right. Yeah. Calling Andy Griffith. Yes. But we do have the absolute scientific and mathematical confidence of Nelson and Emery, who's, who have checked and rechecked their equations, and they have absolute confidence in this. And we as viewers don't have really have any reason to doubt their confidence in this and we've been acclimated in this movie to consider these guys the smartest and to consider them the good guys that for me at least we're rooting for them against the other people at the un uh, science council but it doesn't go their way everybody else goes with zuko and says let's just wait it out it'll be fine i also am amused that the name of the other guy is zuko and it's all about dealing with how how, how do you stop fire <laughs> uh yay avatar but the problem is also now the entire un is against them and they need to be on the opposite side of the world on a specific day at a specific time to do this 
And Nelson's position is this is a U.S. federal ship. He takes orders only from the president. If he can get confirmation and, and approval from the president for, to pursue his plan, he will do so no matter what the rest of the U.N. says. Except that um, he can't get through to the president. First of all, they have to escape from the U.N. at high speed uh, before they're all arrested and prevented from doing this. They also dive the, the ship in their escape with a bunch of U.N. police on their on top of their ship. And they that- do. They they give them a 15-second warning, you know. But that's one of the first things where Captain Crane is saying, this is horrible and crazy and cruel and wrong to go to a crash dive with men on deck. And Nelson says, don't worry about it. You know, UN police, they swim like fish. It's part of their training. Everybody's fine. Um, we, maybe they were fine, but we couldn't really quite tell based on what we see of yeah, the UN police there. Yeah, there's some things like undertone, <laughs> yeah. like, eddies formed by a diving vessel that make me very terrified of this and the the admiral has just had his grandest i am the i am the scientific mind who can save us and it is followed by the first of the oh you're absolutely crazy moments it is kind of a you take all of the traits of a supervillain and you have him the movie structure it so that he's working for the good of humanity Yes, he's got a wildly advanced ship. He's got a a, a a terrifyingly powerful plan, and he's got a a an ego about it, and a com- and a bit of a dismissive attitude to some of the repercussions. It's very supervillain combination. So they move at high speed towards the location in the Pacific. So they have to go around South America. But they're going to the spot in the Pacific where they need to be to launch this missile 20-some days from from now in order to use their missile to put out the Van Allen belt. And all the while, they are trying to reach the president to get approval to actually go ahead and do it. But they can't because the burning Van Allen belt is causing so much weird radio interference that their extremely chill radio guy just can't get through to the president. I'm sorry, Admiral. I can't get through to no president. He is so chill about this. I I do like how we'll cut from the the men of the the crew getting more and more antsy and getting into fights and getting worried as they hear terrible news and they start to question their admiral and did all of this and he is just absolutely chill. No, the the chill ginger way. radio man. He's so absolutely. Cool. <laughs> so uh, eventually, really wanting to get approval from the president, Nelson comes up. With a plan. And that plan, what does that plan require? That plan requires a journey to the bottom of the sea. Yes, it does. We've actually got the name. (laughs) They they voyage to the bottom of the sea off the continental shelf uh, off the coast of South America because they need to tap into the Brazil-London telephone cable because if they can't reach the president by radio, maybe they can reach him by telephone. Okay. Which, you know, hey, there's a landlines can be valuable. They can. (laughs) We've been trying to contact you about your submarine's (laughs) extended warranty. (laughs) (laughs) And their plan is a good one in that they they find the the telephone uh, cable. They also find a giant squid and have to fight it. Oh, yeah. It's a submarine movie. You've got to fight a giant squid. You've got to have giants. Part of the rules. 
I think it's in Giant Squid's contract that he gets first dibs. If you make a submarine movie, he has right of first refusal to they, be in it. They have a heck of a union. Absolutely. So we have a, a, some padding with a lot of undersea. Look at the cool colors. Look at the wildlife. Look at the giant squid we have to fight. But eventually they do tap into the cable and they are able to talk with London or whatever is left of London because apparently London is largely flooded and it's evacuated. And the one guy there who's answering the telephone has not been able to reach Washington for days. We don't even know if Washington is still there. Which honestly, I, I think could be an interesting little side story because I just want to see this one guy in London like setting up his his telephone operation booth, grabbing all of the snacks from the abandoned uh, shop and just trying to wait out the apocalypse. <laughs> it, it's, it would be a very different, but a very, very British kind of movie. And I feel like they talk with a completely different main character there for a moment. <laughs> but eventually, Nelson decides, well, even if I can't reach the president, maybe that's because the president is no longer there. I still believe this is the best way to save humanity, so I'm going to go ahead with this. But he, he does not apparently have universal support, because there starts to be sabotage on the ship. Engines going down. Their, their power generator, which takes offline their radar and their sonar. Which, without those, we run into uh, a minefield. Yes, I'm never quite sure where exactly that minefield was and yeah. why, but they do want to go into a, uh, a minefield, and Wait. they send out a mini-sub to cut the cable on the mine that gets itself attached to the sea view. And that doesn't go well. Yeah. Because the mine is released, but it immediately detonates against another mine, and they have a very horrific scene of just the damage as it rocks through the sea view and as the mini sub is hurtled into the other mines and the men on it and the sub are lost yes and if you did not think this is going to be a movie with a a seriousness to its danger before that's the moment it tells you and i can appreciate the fact that they they treat that with the solemnity it deserves it's not one it's not just a couple of additional ticks on the body count for this movie. This is suddenly a serious loss of life with characters we have met, characters that the other characters know, and it raises these stakes. And suddenly, the phrase Nelson's folly, which was spending all this money on the sea view, it started, it started to come back to me to think about this plan that Nelson has to mm -hmm. shoot nuclear missiles to save the sky. You know, is he a little crazy and what is he, where is he going to stop? What is he willing to do to pursue this plan? Or is he right? And even at the loss of some of his crew, it's worth doing because otherwise we lose the entire planet and the species. And so you wind up with this growing tension in this fantastic vessel on this voyage as some people are siding with the captain more, and some people are siding with the admiral, and allegiances switch, and there is someone sabotaging and attacking people. This is, a, this is a game of Among Us in a wonderful way. It is. It is. And we have the, the classic shipboard movie trope of some of the officers eventually deciding, we have to 
get the captain, the admiral in this case, we have to have the admiral declared unfit to serve so that we can take over and impose some sense on this and stop pursuing this dangerous course of action because we've already seen that it can lead to loss of life here. But that plan will have to come on to be put on hold as we're attacked by an unidentified other submarine. <laughs> yes, they did get word about the fact that like the other navies of the world had been tasked with preventing the sea view from carrying out this plan of Nelson's. So now there's uh, now there's attacks on the inside and attacks on the outside. And we get a pretty cool submarine chase. We do. Which the sea view uh, attempts to win by diving into the Marianas Trench because it can go deeper than any other submarine made. It can survive a deep dive that the attack sub will not be able to survive. Right. But that doesn't prevent the attack sub from sending some torpedoes its way, rocking it tr- tremendously, and for some reason causing lots of the control panels on the bridge to catch, catch fire and spark. Yeah, catch... I, 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 it's, it's circuit breakers, guys. Circuit breakers... I, I, Really, when if 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 any attack causes your control panels to explode, catch fire, and throw your crew across the room, <laughs> it's not very great. You've got to do something about that. I cannot imagine we're going to have that sort of thing going forward in in these. It just it makes no sense. <laughs> and as they get closer to their destination. The tensions over who is behind the sabotage, who set fire to the Admiral's cabin, who dis- uh, uh, disabled the generator, they, they come to a head. And as they get to their location, the, the firing system has been, been disabled. And we find out, well, actually, before that, we find out that someone has, is trying to disable the, the reactor. Yes. And that turns out to be the psychiatrist. We're giving away spoilers. Yeah, we're here. giving away spoilers. It's, pro- it's shown to be that Dr. Hiller is, the, is one of the saboteurs. And she was here to study people under stress, but she can't go ahead with some of these things. She's got, <laughs> she's, she doesn't want this to happen. She apparently believes Zuko. Just let it burn out. So she's decided to try to disable it, but she can't, she doesn't succeed in disabling the reactors. She does succeed in getting a red badge lethal dose of radiation. Yes. And then an explosion rocks the ship and she is during her during the confrontation, she is thrown into the shark tank. And all I can think of is that poor shark is going to get radiation <laughs> oh. indigestion by eating this saboteur. Oh, man. Yeah. Poor shark. Poor shark. And I guess the the saboteur died a semi-ironic death, but... I guess so. Poor shark. <laughs> oh. Sharky. But she was not the only person on board who was against this plan. No. So was Alvarez, the guy they picked up as the survivor from the research expedition. Yes. And this is kind of telegraphed because previously in the movie, we see him giving little sermons to groups of sailors aboard the Sea View about how sometimes you just have to go with God's will and what has been ordained to be your end is your end. And he's not really good for morale. He is. 
he is in many ways a character they picked up in the Arctic, and it feels like a, he feels like a Lovecraft character who yes. was brought onto this <laughs> as a refugee during a different kind of apocalypse. It's like this is not the one I was here to attend. <laughs> I, I was here to see the Van Halen belt catch fire, not the Van Allen belt catch fire. It's a very different kind of environment. <laughs> But he's he keeps having these weird moments, and so him being part of the the actual bad guys in that sense is telegraphed. But they keep on faking you out by by saying maybe he's just crazy. He's not evil. Nope. Turns out he's one of the bad guys. And that was a pretty good misdirect in this movie because we kind of suspect something of him. And then we find out, no, it's the psychiatrist who's the saboteur. It wasn't the apocalyptic preacher. And then we get the twist of, well, yeah, it was her, but it was also the apocalyptic preacher. Por que la nos dos? <laughs> because he is now a threatening... Uh, Admiral Nelson and the ship with one of those convenient explosive devices we got to see at the very beginning on our tour. And so we get this this final bit where the Admiral is threatened with explosives and is trying to both talk down his uh, assailant and convince the captain who is not who has been butting heads with him the entire time to finish the plan. And that means the captain has to go outside with diving gear, fit a a manual missile launch thing on the nose of the missile, which is designed. It's like a mag. It's like a magnetic restarter, right? And they and they tell us about this at the beginning too. And even at the beginning, I was wondering. So, in case your research, in case your ship loses all of its control systems. But your research is so darn important that you have to launch one of these nuclear missiles before you can repair the ship. We've got these things. That doesn't sound, again, doesn't sound like something for which research is the plan. The missiles are for research. It, it makes the research nukes seem like something that uh, a Bruce Willis character would say, research this and then self-destruct <laughs> the ship dealing with. Yes, there's that would fit. There's something very much that, but in a, we're actually going to fire it and finish the mission. <laughs> and he does. Captain Kane is out there and fits this jump starter on the nose of the missile, and it's launched presumably at the right time. Because they get to see the Van Allen belt be pushed out into space and the sky stop uh, burning. And that's our film. And they they surface, they go out on deck, everybody's apologizing and being friends again, even though they were deadly enemies uh, previously, as far as, you know, Kane versus Nelson, etc. And meanwhile, the sky, it's it's extremely blue. Yeah. Which kind of surprises me, given the fact that apparently billions of acres of forest and crops have already burned. Yeah. We would have a serious atmospheric problem at this point for quite some time. Yeah, this is, this is one of those apocalypse movies that ends without the apocalypse actually being fully resolved. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations, we have gotten rid of the fever. There's still a lot of damage. Early on, they were talking about the fact that, well, if, if the temperature gets to 175 degrees Fahrenheit, our entire civilization will irrevocably, irrevocably collapse. 
And they do this when it's around 173 or 174. Yeah. And it's like, well, as long as it never got to 175, everything's going to be fine as soon as we stop the, the heat. No, it doesn't no, work that no, way. No. <laughs> I, I wonder if this will come up in our final comments here. <laughs> well, for the sake of, of a story, I mean, they had, to, they had to make the stakes clear. They had to make the solution clear. It would have been quite a downer if they really acknowledged, okay, things aren't going to be gone within the next couple of days. Things are never going to be the same again. But I guess that does bring us around to our final questions, doesn't it? It does. Well, now that you've seen Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, uh, uh, screen or no screen? This is a screen for me. It's a fun movie. It's it's a it's a movie that has a lot of wonderful set pieces and a lot of very fun characters and just some wild adventure. It's not a edge of your seat grip you at every moment, but it's a really get you interested kind of movie. There's almost something really good D&D story about it in that sense. There's something tabletop role playing game about it with the 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 excitement of the characters and the one problem after another aspect that has such a feel to it. But I'm, I'm going screen. I would say screen as well. It is a great movie of its time. It's, I'm going to say it's a great movie. It's, it's a really good movie of its time because it, it's a science adventure. It leans on the science. You can argue what, what it gets right and what it gets wrong. It gets a lot wrong. But it's about science and men of science and people of science. And... It focuses on that and the adventure. It's not like most of the science fiction of its time, which were about spaceships and aliens and, and things like that. It was, it was rescue fiction, like I was saying. So I say screen. Absolutely. So our second question is, revive, reboot, or rest in peace? Huh. I gotta say, in terms of a movie and a setup... I'm I'm in the mood for reboot because I could definitely see doing a version of this with a an advanced sub like this being sent out for research purposes possibly a a an environmental global warming kind of research and investigation story and having them face down some grander threat I just don't think you I want them to do the same threat I, w I want to see this kind of group and team fighting other stuff, dealing with something else. I don't want another movie, another story of them dealing with the belt catching fire. I agree. I don't know that I want revival because I don't know that it makes a lot of sense to try to do something in the same continuity. I mean, I suppose you could. You could say, okay, this is a later generation of the uh, USOS, and we are got the the the... CVUD is the latest vessel, and we're going yeah. to have it in the same continuity. I don't really need that. The idea of rebooting it, that, that could be cool. Rebooting it would be neat. It's, it's reintroduce anew the idea of this super advanced undersea vessel for science and exploration purposes, because there's a lot that we don't know about our own oceans. Absolutely. And there's actually a different version that i also could see and i don't know which this lands in because it's not quite a revival because you can tw you can modify it as you need 
and it's not quite a reboot because it's not focusing on the same story. If you still want it to be about the belt catching fire, give me the story of someplace else during that disaster. Our m- oh. modern disaster fiction has and has such a different way of approaching itself, a different tactic and a different way of being able to build that suspense, that horror, that sadness, all those emotions, that I think showing a story of a tragedy like that happening, and the same way this movie tells us about the rest of the world with news broadcasts that they're picking up little by little, or in radio contact they sometimes get, giving these little bits about how what's happening in the outside world. Having a story where someone's trying to escape where they were to a safe zone, while this the sky is on fire and the world is melting around them, and everywhere they stop for a moment to catch their breath, they catch snippets hearing about this submarine trying to fix it. I like that. There's a different parallel story there that is also just as compelling that I think modern cinematography could actually do a better job showing and depicting than they would have at the time. Yeah, we get all of these reports from every continent about the devastation. I want, well, There are heroes on all those continents. What were those heroes doing for themselves and their people trying to survive this while the CVU is out there trying to stop it? I like that idea. If there was going to be a revival, I would want it to be those side stories. Yeah, there's something to that. So So our next question is uh, revive, reboot, or rest in peace? No, we just talked about that. Wait, what? Huh? You're you're acting like there's this story keeps going. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. I'm just thinking... uh, I get confused because Irwin Allen was responsible for so many TV series. Oh, uh, but we'll be back in a couple of weeks with uh, with more tales of media from the uh, the 1960s. Dad, why do I hear dive klaxons? <laughs> Dad, <laughs> ah, yes. <laughs> in the meantime, while we get everything ship shape, where can they find you online, Dad? Well, you can find me and my projects at bymatthewporter.omg.lol. Uh, you can also find me on YouTube, where I review movies and movie theaters. That's on YouTube.com slash at by Matthew Porter, and there are two T's in Matthew. Uh, Ian, where can people find you? I can be found most places as item crafting, such as item crafting on YouTube, item crafting live on Twitch, and at itemcrafting.com. And if you want more of the Intermillennium Media Project, you can go to immproject.com, and that's where you can find all of our back episodes, including those other submarine movies, and including Lost in Space. And you can also go to our YouTube channel, and that's at youtube.com slash at immproject, or you can follow the link from our website. If you want to contact us, you can reach us at immproject at gmail.com, or you can use the contact form on our website. Or you can join our Discord by following the link on the site. You can also send actual physical mail to Ian and me and the IMMP at P.O. Box 271-167, Littleton, Colorado, 80127. 
If you want to support the podcast, you can buy shirts and mugs and other fun things at our shop. Just follow the link on the website. In addition to the IMMP logo, we have Kosho designs for fans of The Prisoner. We have Who Cares About Phobos designs for fans of our Space 1999 episode, and we've got more to come. You can also join us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Project, or follow the link again on our website. And if you support us on Patreon, you get additional audio content. And if you want to support us, you can also rate and review on iTunes and tell your friends about the podcast. But more important than any of that, uh, thank you very much for listening. We hope you had fun, and we hope you'll join us again soon for more tales of media from a past millennium. In the meantime, go find something new to watch.